You're listening to Real Investor Radio with Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere, where we cover advanced real estate investing topics to help you stay ahead of the curve in your real estate investing business. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Real Investor Radio. I'm Craig Fuhr, joined again by Jack Bevere. Jack, good to see you. Absolutely. You too, sir. We are here for episode 23, and we're just basically having a discussion today of some of the news items that we've seen uh, in terms of the market, uh, some surprising, Jack, some not so surprising, but um, uh, we'll talk a little bit on this episode about single family rents, uh, you know, sort of the price of money right now in terms of uh, Fed policy. And, and uh, this is an article uh, from Business Week that we'll be talking about. And then I'd like to jump into uh, our good friend, Nick Jury. I say good friend. I've never met the guy. He seems like a good guy, though, uh, who runs RE Venture. It's a pretty cool piece of software for real estate investors. He listed the 10 best cities in America, Jack, that are still appreciating right now. So we'll go through that and have some fun with that. But um, man, um, you mentioned on the last episode about uh, the Real Investor Roundtable which is a mastermind that uh, you and Fred Lewis, your partner here at Dominion, have been running since about 2016, Jack? Yeah, past five or six years, yeah. Yeah, so um, I, I think you mentioned that you guys had just uh, came off of a meeting over the last, uh, la the end of last week. And what were your takeaways there, man? That's some of the best investors in the country that you guys have assembled over the years, um, really top operators. You know, give me a sense of, you know, what these guys are going through in their markets all over the country, what you were hearing from them and sort of some of your better takeaways. Cause I know you always come away with some, with better for that meeting. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, like you said, we organized it about five or six years ago. Fred really takes lead on it. Um, and he has put together a group of about 30. We hope we think are high level operators, um, we run it, it, it's a mastermind. We get together to compare ideas, compare notes, help each other's businesses. We run it as a nonprofit because for us, the, the, uh, the point was the ideas. Like we, we could make much more money off of great ideas than we can off mm -hmm. of mastermind dues. Though there are other great masterminds out there that run on a for-profit basis. No knock on anybody. Just that's just what we, how we've chosen to run it. And, um, our goal has been to gather the best, operators and thinkers about their businesses into one place. We get together every four months. Uh, we've been doing it in Baltimore for a while. We also used to do some meetings in Dallas to, to make it easier on the West Coast folks. But um, <clears throat> the point is, you know, we've gotten to know each other. Everyone's, everyone gets very close to each other in the room. The culture is share, sharing ideas, expressing vulnerability. No one's trying to one-up each other. Everyone in the room is a killer. Uh, so like, you know, who gives a shit? And, yeah. um, and really just, you know, kind of share ideas and pain points and, you know, and get, get, get feedback from other folks who are operating at a high level. And so we've got, uh, operators in the room there, uh, who are flipping multi, you know, several hundred houses a year that they're just buying either at, uh, through foreclosures or direct mail, uh, through wholesalers, the courthouse steps, um, Got a lot of build to rent operators, folks who have pivot, who have started in and pivoted to uh, new construction to find greater margins. Folks who were wholesaling at a very high level to the uh, to the funds when they were buying in earnest over the past you know five ten years. Mm -hmm. um, 
a lot of folks who are, guys. are lending. What's that? Multifamily guys. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, multifamily guys. There's also a fair amount of folks who have who do residential, but they also do some other stuff in small commercial. And so they're, you know, we'll talk about self storage. We'll talk about what's going on in industrial and flex. Other interesting opportunities yet yet to come in the office space. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a bunch of real estate entrepreneurs that um, have put together great businesses, and the we're all that, there to help each other. You know, just do better. The thing that I, I've, I've, I've attended and the thing that I thought was fascinating was it wasn't just a room full of wholesalers. It wasn't just a room full of guys who have learned how to do fix and flips. It really is guys who, um, who may have started off uh, as a wholesaler or a fix and flipper, but real operators who have learned to pivot to take advantage of opportunities in the market Yeah, and the cycles. Yeah, absolutely. And at different, different points in time, We've all got our areas of specialty um, just based off of what we like to do and also what the opportunities are in our local markets, right? Because, you know, California is massively different than Chicago is massively different than Charlotte. Um, sure. And we've got folks, you know, from all, all those different kind of places. But, uh, but anyway, so. Um, Big takeaways. Yeah, I started off by, I, you know, we, we kicked off the thing just talking about like kind of the macro economy. And, you know, seeing kind of all these different uh, potentially conflicting, right, like signals that we're getting right now, you've got, you know, you've got super pessimists to super optimists right now mm-hmm. in, in the world. Um, mm-hmm. And we took a, I took a survey of the room and the room was, you know, kind of like it had it had the whole spectrum of, of, of differing views on how the next 12 to 18 months were going to go. Uh, and you got people who are doing different kinds of pivots based off of those views. And so, you know, some people are going to be right and some people are going to be less right. And it'll be really interesting to, uh, to see how that plays out and who's like the, who, you know, who are the relative winners and losers as a result of those predictions. Um, but something that we saw is a lot of pivoting going on right now. Mm. Uh, and a lot of it started, people started to think about it a year ago in the first quarter, second quarter of this year, really started to execute some pivots. We've done our own uh, Mm -hmm. significant pivoting in both the real estate side of things and on the lending side of things uh, to set ourselves up for what we think is what we think is coming over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. And Mm -hmm. you saw a lot of that in the room. Uh, Some folks are completely out. Just we're not buying anything right now. I'm just going to stack pencils down. Yeah. Pencils down. I'm stacking cash. I'm waiting for opportunities. There's going to be blood. Uh, yet other folks who are, who have pivoted from selling build to rent to, to institutions. Now they're selling a hundred percent to, uh, to real, to retail, you know, just, uh, you know, to homeowners. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were, you know, they're doing 300 houses a year and they were, they, that used to be six fifty property packages. And now it's 300 individual retail sales, right? Like that's mm-hmm. easier said than done that pivot. That's um, a big pivot. You got a lot of guys who have slowed down and are and are lending more uh, right now as a result because they think that's just a better risk adjusted return for the capital that they want to deploy. Um, and then we've got some guys who think that hey, you know, who who are like ramping up right now because they think that everyone's wrong and that everyone's leaning back. It's gotten easier to buy, especially over the course of the next last sixty days. We've seen that a bit, um, have you? and they're leaning into that. And saying, "Hey, now's the now. All of you guys are scared, and I'm jumping in right now, and and ramping things up. Yes, it's a difficult operating environment. It's a, it's a it's a difficult cost of capital environment. But I'm such a good operator that it doesn't matter. And I'm going to be 
I'm going to build my platform and take market share from the folks in my market while they're all scared and playing, you know, and, and going skiing. So it was really interesting to see the whole, uh, the whole spectrum of opinions and pivots uh, in the room. And so that's what, uh, that's what we talked about for, for two and a half days. It was great. Can I, so in terms of Dominion, um, you know, one of the largest buyers and, and owners of uh, residential real estate, I would think in Maryland, um, what are you seeing in terms of competition over the last couple months, Jack? Yeah, I would say that I think that last year, uh, our cost of acquisition of a property skyrocketed throughout the course of the year. We probably started the year at four grand to as cost of acquisition of a property, whether that's direct mail or pay-per-click or, uh, or uh, social media ads or um, buying from other wholesalers. Um, we were, you know, we were probably in like the three, $4,000 range. By the end of the mm -hmm. year, we were up to like twelve, thirteen thousand $13,000, which is frankly unsustainable in mm -hmm. our price point market. Um, the first quarter of 2023, we saw a real, inf a big, I would say a, a seller driven capitulation where sellers were all of a sudden realized, hey, this isn't going to get better soon. And these rates are going to stay high for a long time. And I didn't want to do anything in the third or fourth quarter of 2022. But you know what? I need to sell mom's house. So yeah, let's let it go. And mm -hmm. so we saw a lot of activity in the first and second quarter of the year. And then in the third, when interest rates continued to increase, I think a little bit more fear was felt in the economy uh, or about the economy. Um, and we've really seen that transaction volumes continue to decrease. And so uh, our cost of acquisition started really climbing back up. Uh, I would say over the past 60 days, I've seen a little bit of not seller capitulation, but competitor capitulation, where there mm. are folks who are now investors who are now, hey, you know what? I'm pencils down. And mm. I don't think it's the right time. Maybe they, you know, they they saw the rate on that last DSCR loan, and they realized that they're, you know, they're paying all their net income to the lender, and they're not keeping anything in their pocket, and they're going to wait until rates come down, or their bank shut them off, which we've been mm. hearing a ton of that, um, or they're concerned about what value is going to be, and they think that real estate values are going to come down because of this high high sustained interest rate environment, and so they don't think it's a good time to flip even because V may come down 10 points, 10, 15 points. And so I think because of that, everyone's probably in general, are, you know, investors are buying less per capita and the cumulative effect of that, and some people are even pencils down and buying nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and so the cumulative effect of that is a bit less competition. Now, great, I can get my rental property for a eight cap instead of a seven cap, well, I'm still paying eight, eight change to the bank. So like, right. what good does that do me? Uh, I think it's a little bit, I, I see a little bit more optimism on the flipping side of things. One thing that, sorry, I'm running on a little bit here, but no, 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 this. One, one thing that um, struck me about this story, the narrative of the great recession, the wake of the great recession was that, real estate values went crashed as if it happened in a month. Mm. But, but that, it, and it didn't, it didn't happen over a month. It happened over the course of four years. Yes, it did. But, but you know, the narrative of a lot of folks is that 2008 killed me. Well, 2008 didn't kill you. It was the combination of 2007 and then eight and then nine and then 10 that, that killed you. 
um, right. in succession. But if you were a flipper in the in the wake of the Great Recession, I and was. You, yeah, and you were exactly, and you had the discipline to take your lumps and move that house and just get and move on to the next one, even if you didn't make what you thought you were going to make, you were absolutely catching a falling knife. And that is incredibly difficult thing to do. But if you look at the Case Shiller index for real estate values, um, it's not that we had a 40% drop and so it killed everybody. It's that we had a 10% drop and then another 10% drop and then another 10% drop and then another 10% drop year over year over year over year. And cumulatively, we had a 40% drop. But mm. if your flipping margins are 20%, which they should be, right? Minimally on an annual basis, you can yep. still make money, not a lot, right? Like, or, or maybe you're just treading water after expenses and everything, but, it, but that's not what kills you, right? Like if you're disciplined about flipping and if you're disciplined about operating a 20% margin flipping business, even in the wake of the Great Recession, we never saw a year where prices dropped by more than 10% or by more than 15%. And so that didn't kill you. It's the lack of discipline to not just sell the house where the market clears Mm. Or if you screw if you know, if you screwed up as an operator and you and you didn't put out a quality product that could that could kill you where the house just no one wants it because it's not a nice flip but if you put out a quality a quality flip even in a down market you can operate you can recycle your capital and go buy the next one better and then go buy the next one better and go buy the next one better yep. I know that's a lot easier said than done but I'm trying to like frame that because people think that a down or a soft real estate market is an existential threat for flippers. And I don't see it that way. I think that you have to be a, put out a great product and you have to be disciplined about not trailing the market down, like take the price drops to just get your cash back and then go back into the as is market and buy something cheap, buy something, buy it better next time. But yeah. I think that that's still a way to get through softer times like this. And so that's the reason that we're still buying is we're, we're just flipping a lot more. You know, I think Been an interesting, I, I, it's a great point. And I, I think I've made it on the show before. Um, it would be really great to go back and sort of look at um, how wholesale prices of houses, for lack of a better term, sort of decreased um, significantly over those four years. And so what I found was we could put out a quality product, put it on the market just like the house next door that had not been rehabbed at all and houses were still moving very quickly mainly as a result of a fair lending environment lots of government incentives you know i didn't personally jack i didn't really see any significant downturn in demand during that period we put out a great product it was priced right the thing moved in 14 21 days mm -hmm. every single one of them and we made phenomenal margins during that 2009 to 2012 time period it was a you know it felt predictable it, the environment felt predictable yet at the same time you know every news source every talking head every person was telling you how horrible the environment was that's not what i saw on the ground back then certainly not in the maryland area in the dmv area which again admittedly we were you know uh, it, we weren't hit nearly as bad as as other areas yeah. Baltimore City, yeah. yes, uh, but maybe not Maryland at large. We weren't, so, we weren't Phoenix. We weren't, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I think you make a really great point there. Um, you know, better operators, buying better, 
uh, you can overcome the capital constraints at that point. I was with, um, I had dinner last night uh, with a group of folks who were active. And one of them is a, um, a, a one of the, probably the biggest uh, auctioneer in, in Maryland of, mm. of as-is properties. And mm. his commentary was that, was that as is pricing over the past six months has come down like materially, you know, like oh. a, a house that was, you know, if, if, if a shell, a shell in the city was going to, you know, sold for 60 grand six months ago, today it's 30. Um, and that, you know, there's, and, and at the same time, we are seeing some softness in certain price points uh, and neighborhoods in, in Baltimore. And so, there is still some concern, right? Like if you, if you buy a shell and then it takes you, you know, six, nine months to, to get that on the market, you're taking, that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's a long six months right now, six, nine months right now. Um, a, so maybe there's a lot of crystal ball to look into there. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, maybe that's a, just a segment of the market that ha- is that, well, it is particularly high risk. Um, and so that's a, a function or that's, a, that's a, a cause of that significantly decreased as is pricing. But but that's definitely happening right now, and um, so folks who bought you know if you, if you if you bought a piece of real estate and you haven't done anything with it yet, you bought it a year ago and you haven't done anything with it yet, it hasn't been a good year for as is pricing. I think it's starting to come down, and with competitors, I think continuing to get weeded out over the course of the next year, um, it's going to be a thinning of the herd, which should though be good for margins for those who are the the, the market's best operators. Agreed. Totally agreed. Hey, let's jump into this uh, quick report here from our buddy, Bill McBride. Bill, we'd love to have you on the show. Um, this was a, uh, a just a, a very small uh, piece that he put out uh, called Single Family Rent Results. Uh, this was basically, it was a little surprising because, you know, if you kind of, you know, if you're, if you're looking from afar, uh, you would think tough economy rents are probably going down, you know, some maybe significantly. That's not what we're seeing in this report here. And it says uh, below is a table showing the year over year percent changes in three widely follow rent rent indexes. They are the apartment list rent index or the ALRI, the Zillow rent index and the core logic rent index. And basically what they found, Jack, was that um, the only one of them, which was the apartment list rent indexed, showed a year-over-year decline. Um, other, the other two uh, showed that rents have been stable, if not increasing. Correct? Are you yeah, looking at the, that? Uh, I thought that was really interesting. He pulls the public company data from Invitation Homes and American Homes for Rent, which, you know, of course, that's they're not active in all markets. They're in the Sun Belt. They're in newer construction. Um, they're institutionally operated. They're very focused on pushing rents, right? Because they're they're running it like a multifamily REIT as opposed to a mom and pop landlord. So they're a different cut of the market, but their rents are up on average 7% year over year, which I thought was, I mean, that's public data, like from, of their perform of their internal performance. So that's, it's remarkably bullish. Um, and certainly not what you, not what I expected anyway to, to see. Um, I think that that apartment 
data makes sense that that it's the softest side of things. We talked about on the previous episode a concern about multifamily oversupply. Um, mm-hmm. And so though that's going to bleed into the single family space because they are directly competitive products, certainly you're going to see it first in the multifamily competition. Um, and just anecdotally, you know, like anecdotally from the mastermind, like I, you know, I heard folks, certain folks saying like, Hey, yeah, in my market rents are down probably 5%. I mean, they were up 30, but now they're down five from the 30. Um, yeah, so they, I think back a little bit of room, you know? Yeah. So I think what the, the, the takeaway from this report, which I would point everybody to that, um, to the calculated risk blog run by Bill McBride. It's just always great info. Um, that rents are clearly decelerating, yet they're still up, mm-hmm. uh, which I think was a, a bit of a surprise to both of us. And the, again, the X factor, I think, is the, con- the, so the consumer is still strong. The consumer is still able to pay. Um, courts are back up and running. So rent court is uh, you know a thing again. Um, and I think the X factor is, is recession. You know, it, but, but we're also not in a recession yet, dot, 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 yet. Um, And so what factor does a recessionary environment, a weaker jobs market have on rents? Do they flatline? Do they decrease? Um, And of course, that's going to be a submarket question too. Um, Austin's going to be a very different story than, you know, than Indiana. Agreed. Uh, Let's go through um, this interesting YouTube video put out by Nick Jury from RE Venture. Uh, Nick puts out some interesting content, and I just thought this was a fun one to go through, Jack. Um, the, you know, if we listen to, uh, you know, kind of get our feelings and we sort of, uh, we only get our news from one source, you would think that, uh, you know, markets are kind of sideways in terms of price, uh, in terms of value, if not declining in most places, um, you know, uh, Nick put out a list of the 10 top appreciating markets in the country. And in typical prices right fashion, Jack, I'm going to go 10 to 1. So we'll start with the least and then go to the best. And if I ever do it the opposite way, I need you to call me out on that because no one But it's still the top 10, right? It's still the top 10. Okay. It is the top 10. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, all right. Number 10, Knoxville, Tennessee, Jack. uh, Up. one percent a month over the past few months, over the past several months, uh, the average home price being about three hundred and thirty thousand dollars in Knoxville, which is still overvalued historically by about thirty seven percent. So Knoxville, Tennessee, number ten, Jack. Um, I would think Knoxville would be benefiting from the fairly large influx of of people moving there during COVID and sort of, I think Knoxville has actually been uh, increasing over the past several years in terms of its population. Number nine, San Diego. San Diego still appreciating, Jack, by seven and a half percent year over year with the average home price for a 2-1 being $900,000 currently, but still appreciating. Number eight, do do you want to have a guess at any of these? Do you want to you want to throw out a guess at uh, some no, city that might be on the list? You said San Diego was in the top ten, so I, I immediately discount my ability to guess what the next <laughs> one's going to be. I have no well, idea. This one's this one's going to blow your mind. I would have thought that most of these would be um, 
probably some of the northeastern states uh, or some of the northeastern cities and then uh you know the the california i don't know but milwaukee wisconsin would have not shown up on my radar jack but that's also up about 7.5% year over year milwaukee number 7 new haven connecticut where the uh, the by the way the home of uh, the greatest pizza in the world I need to get up there Average home price in New Haven is about $347,000, and uh, their population is fairly stable there. Number six, Trenton, New Jersey, up 9% year over year. Why are we not investing in Trenton, Jack? <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, on, I love the contrarian. hate these lists. Like they're, they're like totally clickbait, but like you put like these, you put those five cities on a on a list and tell me like, Hey, what do these five cities have in common? And it would not, I would not have guessed that they were you know, positive home price appreciation. Right. Yeah. Well, it only gets better from here. Number five, Savannah, Georgia. Again, Savannah is one of those towns that is constantly increasing in population. Um, a lot of people moving there. There's only 700 houses on the market currently. So incredibly low inventory in Savannah. How do you Georgia. explain Trenton? Then how do you explain Trenton? People aren't moving to Trenton. No one, no, no one's moving not. to Trenton. Only the proximity to uh, New York. Um, okay. And I think, isn't Princeton there? Big college town? A lot of, the, a lot of in common with this whole list is college towns uh, and military. Big okay. military towns. Yeah, San okay. Diego notwithstanding, right? Um, I'm sorry. So Savannah, Georgia, average price is uh, 317000 which is still uh, lower than the national average for home prices, uh, which makes it a little bit more affordable as well. Uh, and I think the wages there are fairly decent. Uh, number four, a town that is much maligned over the past uh, at least 20 years with uh, a lot of companies moving out, Syracuse, New York up 8.1% year over year. And that is one where I'm sorry, inventory historically low with only 700 houses on the market. That was not Savannah. Number three, even more surprising, Rochester, New York, Jack, up 8.2% year over year. Rochester. Mm -hmm. No offense to our friends in Rochester. I don't see it. Uh, number two, Fayetteville, North Carolina up 9% and up 200% since 2017, but oh still God. rising. Wow. So uh, what did I say? Fayetteville, North Carolina. Also, uh, I believe that's home of Fort Bragg, which is now Fort Liberty. Uh, and uh, that's about, I think, 60,000 people on that base down there. So no, no uh, shortage of folks that want to live in Fayetteville. And number one, Jack, any guess? I'll tell you it's in the Northeast. Greatest it's city in America, Baltimore. <laughs> Greatest city in America. That's what it says it, on every bench. It's on the benches. Every yeah, park bench. Benches. Here we yeah. go. Number one, Hartford, Connecticut, up 9.2% year over year. Shocking. <sighs> All of these are cities that I wouldn't have expected you to say because the past 10 years has been a, a conversation about home price appreciation driven by domestic migration, right? From the Northeast and blue states down to the South and Southeast. So like Tennessee, sure. Like that makes sense to me. North Carolina, that makes sense to me. 
but you're talking about New Jersey, Connecticut, and New York being, you know, having five of the top 10 and, and San Diego, a super high cost per square foot market being on there. That's uh, mm-hmm. just doesn't fit the narrative that I would have expected you to say. Well, if you take a town like Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where they've had a net outflow of uh, population for at least 25 years, why would the price of housing be appreciating at seven and a half percent year over year? I, it's, it's the craziest thing to me. And is, so is I that, think the, go ahead. Is that just a function of, I mean, maybe it's just a function of like, there's, there's just such little transaction volume happening because everyone in the Northeast refinanced and, and so that no one's putting anything on the market. And while in this six month period, you know, houses, housing prices are up because there is still some demand and just no supply you know, is that a, is that a, is that, is that a trend that is going, is that a trend or is that just, you know, a data point and this, and, and if you pull it six months from now, it'll be a completely different list of, of 10 cities. I think that's a great question to ask Nick when he comes on the show. Yeah, awesome. Nick, is this, a, is this a blip in the radar? Is this, is this video going to uh, make you cringe six months from now or it will, it, because it'll be a whole separate set of 10? Or are these actually 10 great cities in America where people, you know, where, where we could expect more appreciation? I, I think um, the if you listen to the whole video, it's about 16 minutes. The, the, a lot of this had to do with a, just a severe lack of inventory in, in a lot of these towns with still, you know, fair demand. Um, and some of these are actually some of these are still very affordable in terms of um you know, average house price versus wages. Um, so I think that's, it makes them a little bit more attractive for folks to be, you know, the influx, right? Um, and then obviously the the proximity to good jobs in terms of military or, um, yeah, the, the universities. Land-constrained environments, land-constrained markets too, right? Like they're not handing out permits in anywhere, you just said. I can't so, think of I feel like that exacerbates the the supply. De- you know, when there when there's a favorable sl- supply demand dynamic that supports housing price increases, the fact that you can't build any new houses to compete with the existing home sale, the existing home inventory, is probably a positive uh, factor in in short term home price appreciation or long term home price appreciation. Yeah, you know, I think too, um, it, it kind of speaks to a little bit of what we were saying with regards to the market back during the 2008 you know, through 12 time period where it would be easy to look from afar and say, oh, you know, there's nothing good. There's, there's, no, there's no bright spots. Um, you know, if I, if I pick up a paper, I turn on the internet, there's just nothing compelling for me to jump into the market as an investor. When in fact, you know, we're, we're looking at 10 markets across the country right now that, um, yeah, they might be tough to be buying good deals in, but they're still in appreciating environments. And I, I think uh, to Nick's credit, he also pointed out, he has this great map on RE Venture where it shows sort of the, the, heat, the heat and the cold, you know, the, the tough markets and the bad. And they're usually defined by some shade of red or some shade of blue. So the dark blue would be, uh, you know, the better markets. The red would be the tougher markets. And so he did mention, you know, some of the tougher areas in the country right now, the toughest hit states are 
believe it or not, all out west, the Utah, Arizona, Nevada, Idaho, and Washington State are all um, some of the toughest markets in the country right now, uh, you know, in terms of depreciating values or, or stagnant values. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was a fun little uh, exercise to go through. The last thing I wanted to go over today, Jack, was this uh, brief story that I found uh, in Business Week. There's a lot of talk, you know, is the price of money going up? Is it saying the same for a while or will it be going down? And I'm sure that you guys had a chance to talk about where you thought rates would be heading, um, what the Fed would do. Any of the discussion like that during RIR, during the Mastermind, Jack? Yeah, absolutely. And we actually, um, we probably do it every time. And we referenced that, I think it was a year ago, we took a survey of the room where you thought the prime rate was going to be, the prime bank rate was going to be a year from now. And so fast forward to today and the, and and it's at, I think it's at eight and a quarter right now, eight and a half. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was the top, the most kind of like, you know, pessimistic view in the room was that number. So the Fed has, you know, outshot all of our expectations on um, what, you know, in terms of, in terms of increasing rates. And um, there's this, there's this resource that I like to refer to. It's a U.S. Treasury, U.S. Treasury Yield Curve.com. Mm. Super nerdy website, right? And all it is, is this cool little app that shows you what the uh, what the well what the yield curve looks like, and you can toggle the date, and it'll tell you what the yield curve looked like on that date. And so, you know, you can see when the yield curve. You can look back and see, hey, when did the yield curve invert? You know, when did we really start to? Did people start, really start to con- get concerned about a an upcoming recession? And you look at the if you, if you if you if you're a nerd like me and you you play with it uh, and you go back in time, what is the only thing that is true about it is that we've always been wrong. We have been we have been very wrong. And this is like, you know, this the yield curve is like the compilation of like the best minds in finance and real estate and the in the economy. Like if you, you know, if if you knew better, you can make it about what the yield curve was going to look like. You can make a pure bet and make a lot of money if you're better than everybody else. And uh, that hasn't happened uh, because everyone's been wrong, like and wrong by a lot for the past five, you know, five years. And so, how so? Uh, just the shape. The shape just keeps changing. Where you know, where, where they thought five year rates were going to be five years ago, are nowhere close to where five year rates where where rates are today. You I know, see. In, a year ago, what, what the one year was is nowhere close to what the one to what where rates are today. So we, you know, what what we were guessing the rates should be, were just wrong. Um, and, um, and, you know, that's a a big reason as to why, um, the price of mortgage backed securities has decreased significantly. What got the bank, what got a lot of banks into trouble, uh, back in the spring, uh, was just, you know, not having interest rates hedged appropriately. Um, and you know, this, the yield curve is kind of the expression of all those cumulative bets. So anyway, uh, I say all that to say that I have no idea what uh, what rates are going to do in the future, and it's been a fool's errand to to try and to and guess that. And um, I'm not aware of anyone who has been consistently right about it, because what they should have been doing is make, you know put their money where their mouth is, and they'd have been retired by now. 
a couple uh, episodes ago, I don't remember the exact conversation, but you talked about sort of like you didn't see any sort of compelling reason for the Fed to be lowering rates anytime soon. You yeah, I feel that like, way. Yeah, kind of two thoughts on that. One is that um, <clears throat> there's the in the, in this in the bullish narrative um, of the economy, there's this logical connection that people make that I don't understand. They take a leap that I don't understand, which is um, once uh, it's, you know, at some point in the future, once inflation comes down, the Fed will drop rates, the Fed will start dropping rates. And once the Fed start, starts dropping rates, dot, 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 dot. And I'm like, whoa, 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 what, why would, why would the Fed, why is it a foregone conclusion that the Fed is going to drop rates? If we don't, if they don't drive us into a recession where they need, where, where, where they're hitting above target levels of unemployment um we're and we're far from that mm -hmm. you know they're not going I don't, I don't see any reason why they would want to to drop rates if they drop rates that's like their own that's their main tool right like if they don't if when, when rates were down at one percent zero you know close to close to zero they rent you know that's their bullets right like they they don't have any way to affect the economy when rates are low and so you know they had to they had to start buying mortgage backed securities and treasuries and put them put them on their balance sheet in order to to be able to do something to try mm -hmm. to spur an economy when they had a low interest rate environment so for them being in a higher interest rate environment is having a full chamber uh you know or a full magazine rather of of bullets to if we get driven into a recession actually do something and and call and be able to to pull us out of that so this this idea that the Fed wants to drop rates, I just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, so I don't think it's a I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. And they've had such a protracted battle against labor uh, in terms of you know labor being the, the the driving force in 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 causing inflation, and which is you know been their battle against inflation. So I just think that they're going to get rates down to 2% and then make sure they stay there and a little recession is just fine with them. You know, let's just change the psychology of American labor, put, you know, put labor back into its place, so to speak, because mm -hmm. that's the only way that they can then can see 2% inflation on a consistent basis, which is what, you know, Powell wants his legacy to be. Yeah. So for me, th this whole, this whole jump to next year, the Fed's going to start dropping rates unless you think we're in a hard recession and they way overshoot like then i don't understand why you would 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 you know should include that statement in the in the next sentence yeah I, so, I, I, yeah that's one thing the bloomberg or yeah was it bloomberg business week report their their whole conjecture here is yeah weak economic growth a slowdown a significant slowdown you'll you may see the fed react um uh, one of the most important reasons for the drop in the interest rate over the uh, 60s and 70s was the gross domestic, gross domestic product expanded at an average of most, almost 4% of year, thanks to a combination of the swelling workforce uh, in the early part of the period and rapid productivity gains. But by the early 2000s, those forces were petering out. You know, we were offshoring factories and jobs. And in the wake of a global financial crisis, um, 
you know, they were the GDP growth slumped to around 2%, which appears to be exactly where Powell wants it to be, kind of keeping that GDP at, at roughly 2%. Um, so that's, that's the real question, you know, it, where is the, will the economy continue to uh, slow to that 2% rate? Um, well, I think he wants inflation to be at 2%. He'd love a strong economy. He'd love a 4% growth, GDP growth rate, as long as prices stay stable. Yes, I'm sorry. Correct. Correct. So, yeah, I mean, the, I, I, I love your, I'd love to talk more, Jack, about this theory of there's no real compelling reason um, for them to do anything with rates currently. And that, that is there, all of the bullets in the chamber. I, I think you make a really great, great point there that, that that's their, that's what they have to fight. Yeah. This economy. That's, with. Yeah. That's what they, that's what they have to, to move the, the needle. They never had a mandate. I think they're, I've heard, I was just reading stuff that like, you know, my impression is that they are uncomfortable with the amount of uh, both treasuries and mortgage-backed securities that is on that are on their balance sheet, the Fed's balance sheet. Um, that was something that they did in the wake of the Great Recession because it was a housing market-driven recession, and so mm -hmm. that was a tactical thing they could do to try to bolster the housing market, get mortgage rates down. So they bought mortgage-backed securities. That was never their mandate. They were never supposed to, quote unquote, supposed to do that. And mm. now they, here we are 15 years later and they haven't been able to get them off their balance sheet. I feel I, I, I'm, I, I'm under the impression that a number of the board governor, the, the number of the governors are, um, the FDIC board governors, FDIC, the Fed board governors are um, uncomfortable with those balance sheet holdings. And so I think they're just going to let them, I don't think they're coming back into that market. I, you know, I just, I don't think they're going to be a buyer of mortgages for I don't know, maybe ever again. Mm. Um, and uh, so anyway, that, that doesn't give, you know, the, that, that's a huge, they were a huge player. They were, they, were, they were a market moving player in mortgage markets and they're out. And I think they're going to stay out. What are you excited about right now? What, what excites you as, as an operator in both, you know, single family buying, uh, you know, in the, in the single family, uh, residential business, as well as a, a lender in the business. What are you, what are you excited about? Yes. Yeah, so you have two, to look forward to every day, Jack. Yeah. 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 You need something, right? Um, I think that, I think that, uh, competition is getting weaker and that's going to lead to a widening in flipping margins over the course of the next year. You're going to have to balance that against falling values or potentially rather so potentially falling values. Uh, so not a riskless thing, but if you're a good flipper, and I think we are a good flipper, we're a good operator as far as flipping houses goes. Um, then I think that that's a, that business will come back. Um, we had a, I mean, we had a ton of fun doing that from 2011 to 2018 by 2019, mm -hmm. it had gotten extremely competitive and flipping margins got, you know, dropped down to, you know, a razor's edge. Unless, and then we had a whole bunch, now that got bailed out because of a whole, whole bunch of home price appreciation in 2020 and 2021, which kind of just bailed everybody out. But, um, but in, by 2019, the flipping business had become very, very competitive. And I think that this higher interest rate environment is going to 
uh, weed out some competition and get back to that you can be a flipper without home price appreciation bailing you out just as a good operator. Um, so I like that business. It's fun. We like putting out beautiful product. Um, I like getting deals and I like, you know, we like creating beautiful products. So I'm looking forward to doing more of, of that business. What about as a lender? Yeah. On the lending side of things, um, it's really interesting. The market has moved, the market has moved towards balance sheet lenders. So folks lending their own money, Mm -hmm. um, you know, first position lenders, bridge, you know, whether that, you know, bridge lenders or DSCR, if you want to hold paper, if you're able to hold paper for 30 years, no one is right. Like that's just an institutional thing, but they're charging like really high rates. They're getting paid very well to, to lend secured by real estate, which I think is a great bet, uh, on the bridge loan side. So as like a private lender as a, a fix and flip lender, um, mm-hmm. those rates are up back to where they were, you know, seven, eight years ago. And, um, and now what, now what, what hasn't favored is if you want to grow your lending business though, it's really hard to grow your lending business right now because then you have to use other people's money and other people's money is very expensive right now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I can, there's lots of people who would love to lend us money at nine, 10%. Um, but we're not lending at 14 and four or, you know, 13 and three, we're just trying to like lend to the best operators who are still in the 11 and two, 12 and two market. Um, and some folks lower than that, even still some competitors lower than that, even still. So there's not, you can't make very much money borrowing money from other people at 10% and then lending it out at 11 and two. Um, but if you're just lending your money, I think you can do, um, you know, you can get a very safe 11 and two, 12 and two, Mm. uh, you know, an unlevered, you know, 13, 14% uh, on your money is, is I think very attractive. So lending our own money and I think a pivot towards flipping, that's kind of what we're doing right now. Hmm. What, how much of the talk at, uh, the real, the real investor roundtable centered around capital, finding better sources of capital, um, things like that. Yeah. The finding better sources of capital is, is a toughie right now. Um, I think that there's a, I think that there is a shift back towards private, the private lending market. Um, like, you know, like borrowing from friends and family and just folks that you'd meet and having private corporate debt, um, secured or unsecured, you know, just depending on your deal. I think that's become a much more interesting, a much more important part of real estate investors, balance sheets. If you're not, if you don't have some friends and family, or at least just, you know, like rich doctor guy that you met and he likes you money on your balance sheet. I think it's a mistake, um, because it's sticky, uh, and it hasn't moved up in price that much. Like Mm. two years ago, you borrowed that money at 10%. Today you borrow that money at what? 11, you know, like interest rates are up 500 basis points, but the cost of private capital is up like a hundred, maybe. Um, and so that's, you know, it's, it's, it's very attractive from the borrower's perspective relative to everybody else, you know, like the bank will lend you money, but their bank might lend you money rather, but they want, they're going to lend you money at eight and a half, 9%. Your private lender makes it a little bit easier, but they're going to charge, you know, 13, 14. Um, but your you know, but your rich uncle will still charge you 10 and with like very little strings attached. That's 
that seems like good money right now. Yeah. Uh, so I think that people are borrowing more private money. And I think that real estate investors should continue to, uh, to look for opportunities to add private lending uh, to their own balance sheet. And, you know, if you, if you're a self-respecting real estate investor and you can't deploy capital above a 10 in this world, uh, you know, I don't know what to tell you, you know, I can't help you, but, um, I think you can find good loans at 12 and two. So like take the money on at 10, lend it out at 12 and two. And then if you want to use it for your projects, you know, sell that bridge loan off it, sell that bridge loan to Torak or somebody. And, um, and then you've got that 10% money to do what you want to do with the interesting deals that are going to present themselves over the course of the next 12 months. So you feel, I think it's like you, build up the balance sheet a little bit and then like be patient with an opportunistic eye. That's kind of, that's us right now. Yeah. That's I, the final question would be, do you feel like there's just that that's what a lot of the better guys are out there doing? Just finding, finding as much capital at, at, at good prices right now. There's a there's definitely a segment I would say of the um, <clears throat> operators is a uh, that, that's a theme I would say in in mm -hmm. the in the higher volume operators that we were hanging out with. Um, depending on though, the caveat to that being depending on how good or bad you think the next twelve months are going to be from an economic point of view, people are either doing a lot of that or just a little bit of that. Um, but yeah, that's definitely a theme. Okay. Well, dude, that's all I've got for today. You have anything else you want to add? No, man. Good discussion. Great to see you. Looking forward to uh, looking forward to the next one. And uh, as always, enjoy the conversation. Yeah, thanks everybody for tuning in. We love your comments uh, below or anywhere where you can comment. Love to hear from you. I need to start checking out the comments a little bit more for folks that are uh, chiming in. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. This has been uh, Real Investor Radio. I'm Craig Fear with Jack Bevere. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you again soon.